0: FMR
1: 101.3 Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books. Celebrating getting more books to more people.
2: August, the eighth month of the year, if you can believe that. But... August is also a word that has another meaning, too. It can mean marked by majestic dignity or grandeur, according to the Miriam Webster dictionary. Or it can mean venerable, according to my dusty old Oxford dictionary that I had to pull off my bookshelf covered in cobwebs. And August can also mean respected and impressive, according to the Google machine. All appropriate, since today is the 1st of August, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. An hour of reviews of a big pile of majestic, dignified, grand, venerable, respected, and hopefully impressive books. So stay tuned with me, your host, Paige Nick. We kick off the August show with Beryl Eichenberger. Beryl, I'm looking forward to hearing what you thought of Holding My Breath by Anne Bickard. The blurb describes it as a candid, heartbreaking, and very funny memoir, of life in one of Johannesburg's busiest emergency rooms. One wouldn't expect an emergency room memoir to be funny, especially one set in Joburg. So I'm curious what you thought of it.
3: The shadows of COVID still lurk. While not major headlines, there are still some worrying reports of new strains and rising numbers of cases. Perhaps we are less fearful now, what with vaccinations and all that, and many of us have slung away our masks. We are perhaps allowing the last two years to move into the shadows of our memories. But for the medical profession, the good fight continues. Dr. Anne Bickard's Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an Emergency Room Doctor, is a very personal account of her COVID experiences from August 2020 through to January 2022. Bickard's style is warm and uplifting, but with many moments where my breath caught in my throat... The memoir journal sequel to Saving a Stranger's Life, The Diary of an Emergency Room Doctor, throws the reader into the whirlpool of what our frontline medical staff not only had to deal with during the crises of the pandemic, but what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Though Bickard works at a private hospital, it is still a gruelling job, and while conditions are somewhat better than in the public sector, it's hard to imagine where Bickard got the time to write. Overstretched? Understaffed, even in this sector, has given rise to a feisty and well rounded, eminently readable book. One can only admire her skills in multitasking. What I took away from this book is how much strength and fortitude these wonderful people have, how much they gave up during COVID and continue giving up to save our lives. The exhaustion, the commitment, it is hard to imagine, but it's so very vivid. Picard has given us a bird's eye view of life in the ER, and often it's not pretty. But she also acknowledges the bravery and dedication of staff on this continuous merry-go-round. I would describe the book as witty, pissy, and wise. Picard is an older doctor, wise from experience, able to see the humor in situations. Pissy as she cuts through some of the claptrap that must be part of her day, but always the professional and never leaving anything to chance, doing the best for her patients, despite all odds. Wonderful anecdotes of her encounters add vibrant colour to the sterile corridors of the emergency room. One can see the dapper 80-year-old unashamedly flirts with her. Doctor, he says earnestly, I hope you know CPR, because you take my breath away. (laughs) And the sad backstory, the bereaved and lonely, the young man whose nipple has moved. The first customer today reports that the previous night, his right nipple had moved away from its usual place. He noticed its absence when he looked in the mirror and later found it in his armpit. Wow, I say with a slight frown. I've never heard of a migrating nipple before. Let's have a look. I slide the door shut and motion him to pull his T-shirt off. Oh, it's moved back now, he says. (laughs) Yes, there are laugh out loud moments but also the tragedies that come with the territory, the heartbreaking moments when Grimm visits, an entity she despises and fears, and an indescribable torment of, what else could I have done? And having to tell the waiting relatives. The real ER is a far cry from the romanticism of some of the TV medical series, but what they have in common is the energy and passion that has to be the driving force behind any doctor. Bickard reveals all of this in her no-nonsense way. She offers a group in stories that are overshadowed by the pandemic, underlining the many tragedies that challenge the medical teams daily. The second wave of COVID is exhausting, and by January 2021, she says, it's still us, the same team of doctors and nurses for nine whole months. League is cancelled, and I'm beginning to feel like a caged animal. We are all thinner and greyer and worn down with the pandemic. No question, this wave is worse than the first. Interspersed with what may seem doom and gloom, I hasten to add that this is not a depressing read. Far from it. There is wonderful upliftment with the humorous encounters. Gosh, these humans can be very odd at times. And the opening up of Biscar's home life, most definitely saving her sanity, the farm, her partner, and the velvety Snoopies, as she calls her rescue greyhounds, along with Cookie the pit bull, provide the balance to the exhausting ER routine. She opens the door to allow us into this hallowed world, and one can see how this woman keeps going. She laughs at herself when she tried surfing on a short break to the coast, an ill-fated trip if ever there was one. She shares her concerns openly and authentically. That medicine is a vocation that that can never, ever be in doubt. But more than anything, this book is one of courage, an accolade to the often forgotten, a reminder of sacrifice and memorable in its simplicity and humanity. Holding my breath, further exploits of an ER doctor, by Anne Bickard, is
2: published by Jacana. Beverly Rose miller keeps us in a similar theme with a review of The Midwife by Tricia Cresswell.
4: The Midwife by Tricia Cresswell is a timely book that has arrived in a world still at war over women's reproductive rights, those same rights fought for by women of my generation, and now it appears increasingly under threat. When a young woman is found freezing, naked, and near death on the dark Northumberland moors, she is revived in the dirt poor home of a brutish farmer and his half starved, heavily pregnant wife. Recovering from her baffling near death experience, this young woman has no memory at all and is given the name Joanna, the first of many names she will bear during a long journey of reinventing herself. The historical time is at the very beginning of the Victorian era and women rightly regarded childbirth as a serious potential danger. After all, Victoria herself became queen only because the only other legitimate heir to the throne, Princess Charlotte, died when giving birth at the age of 21. And it didn't help matters that qualified male doctors looked down on obstetrics As distasteful and beneath their dignity so little headway or interest was given into medically improving the frightening survival rates for women had it been men at risk it would have been a different story as the starved and abused wife or perhaps sister of the brutish farmer goes into labor Joanna realizes she knows exactly what to do to help her through the birth and she saves both mother and baby And while her personal memory does not return, in fact it never quite does, she does know, really know, that she's trained in medical techniques and has an unusual skill and empathy in helping women through their birth crises. Parallel to this story, and intimately connected to it, is the career of Dr. Borthwick, a rare medic who attends wealthy London women during their pregnancies. He is also drawn into the savage world of lying in hospitals for poor women in the slums of the Devil's Acre. And in this foul and reeking place, so many of them died from sepsis and neglect that in labour they sometimes chose to deliver their babies in the street instead. As Joanna's reputation as a midwife in Northumberland grows, she is mentored by a kind and elderly doctor, and she adopts the name of Mrs. Sharp, not the first time she would create a new identity for herself as a healthcare professional. There is a growing sense in the novel that the two threads of this story must intersect, and indeed they do. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but can promise that the reveal is an unanticipated surprise. The medical details of this thoughtful debut novel are accurately portrayed. The author is a retired public health doctor who spent much of the COVID pandemic in England volunteering as a vaccinator. The midwife is written against the backdrop of the real dangers of childbirth. In the 18th century prior to the introduction of hygiene and later antibiotics, one in four women would die from pregnancy in the UK. And before congratulating ourselves on how much that's changed, and thank goodness it has due to modern advances, it's worth remembering that globally more than 800 women still die every day from issues related to pregnancy. One of the most devastating health statistics I've seen recently is that the leading cause of death in developing countries for girls aged 15 is from complications due to their early pregnancies and childbirth. Perhaps the most important of modern advances for women has been the hard-earned right to control our own bodies, though still not everywhere, and in some places, actually going backwards. I've been talking about the compelling and thought-provoking novel The Midwife by Tricia Cresswell.
2: Thank you, Beverly. Next up, some music all the music in our show has been cleverly selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Woods and this month the five tracks in our show all have one really cute theme take a listen to the first track and then the second track a little later and see if you can guess that theme I'll fill you in on it at the end of the show but I'm sure you will have guessed it by then
5: It was just one of those things Just one of those crazy flings One of those bells that now and then rings Just one of those things It was just one of those nights Just one of those fabulous flights A trip to the moon on gossamer wings Just one of those things If we thought a bit of the end of it when we started painting the town we'd have been aware that our love affair was too hot not to cool down so goodbye dear and amen here's hoping we meet now and then it was great fun but it was just one of those things Just one of those bells that now and then ring. Just one of those things. A trip to the moon on gossamer wings. Just one of those things. If we thought a bit. Of the end of it when we started painting the town We'd have been aware that our love affair was too hot not to cool down So goodbye dear and amen Here's hoping we meet now and then It was great fun
2: That first track was just one of those things composed by Cole Porter and sung by Nat King Cole. You may not have guessed the theme yet, but I'm sure you'll get it the second you hear what our second track is. But first, another review. This is Book Choice, after all, and that's what we're here for. Kindly sponsored by Exclusive Books on Fine Music Radio. Anthony Frijon reviews a book called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli by Mark Seal. This is the story behind the making of The Godfather, capiche? Welcome to Book Choice, Anthony, our very own show, Godfather.
1: To begin, a question. Does it enhance one's enjoyment of film if one knows what the director and cast went through to achieve the end result? The American Film Institute ranks this as the second greatest film in American cinema. One quote from this iconic film, make him an offer he can't refuse, instantly The Godfather. This year marks the 50th anniversary of its release. It went on to gross over $300 million at the box office, receiving universal acclaim from critics and audiences worldwide. Not bad for a film that was planned to be a low-budget gangster story. This is not a review of the film, but of a book about the making of the film. Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli is an engrossing book by Mark Seal, detailing the making of the godfather more drama off screen than on to quote from adventures in the screen trade by william goldman the three rules of hollywood rule number one nobody knows anything rule number two nobody knows anything and rule number three nobody knows anything quite incredible what with all the egos power struggles and conflicting creative ideas how this masterpiece of the art of cinema ever got made. On the strength of a sixty-page manuscript, Mario Puzo, a failed writer of forty-five, had written, Robert Evans, the head of Paramount, made Puzo an offer, being flat broke, he couldn't refuse. The Godfather was published in 1969 and sold over nine million copies in two years. Before a roll of film had been shot—in fact, before the script was even completed—issues appeared, not least objections from organized crime, the Mafia. Mob boss Joseph Colombo said it showed Italians in a bad light and demanded all mentions of Mafia and Cosa Nostra had to be removed from the script. Al Ruddy, the film's producer, Ironically, only because he was known for bringing films in under budget, Ruddy had to deal with constant harassment from his bosses at Paramount about costs, and death threats and threatened union strikes from the mafia. Al Ruddy skillfully won Joe Colombo over to actually supporting the making of the film. Francis Ford Coppola wasn't the first choice as director. Top-name directors turned the job down. He only got the job because Robert Evans wanted a director who had an Italian background. Reluctantly, Coppola took the job because he, like Puzo, needed the money. Together with Puzo, they set to writing the script. Puzo saw it as a gangster film, but Coppola saw it as a metaphor for 1970s America. On every page he made copious, detailed notes of precisely how he wanted to shoot each scene. When it came to casting, literally thousands of actors, well-known and not so well-known, and hopefuls, auditioned. Some of the suggestions from Paramount were ridiculous. Coppola knew exactly who he wanted. Casting Al Pacino and Marlon Brando were just two of the many casting issues. The end result on screen—perfect casting, including some real mobsters. Filming began in March 1971—smooth sailing, all problems overcome, not by a long way. The dailies, the rushes of the previous day's shooting, weren't well received. Get rid of Pacino, he's no good, was one of the cries. Apart from Al Ruddy and a handful of others, Coppler was always at risk of being replaced. Even some of the film crew wanted him fired. They felt Coppola didn't know what he was doing. For Coppola, making The Godfather was like non-stop anxiety and wondering when I was going to be fired. I was convinced it was the worst film ever made, that I'm the worst director ever. March 1972, The Godfather was released to critical acclaim and became a major box office success. Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli is an excellent, insightful, and engrossing book by Mark Seal. By the way, the title of the book is taken from a line in the film Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, by Mark Seal, published by Gallery Books. Highly recommended.
2: John Hanks joins us next to present a review by Professor Steve Richardson from UCT of a book by Bruce Ken Cross called Minerals and Gemstones of Southern Africa. This book was published by Penguin Books.
6: This review of a fascinating new book entitled Minerals and Gemstones of Southern Africa was prepared by Stephen Richardson. He's the Emeritus Professor of Geochemistry at the University of Cape Town. I asked him to do this. He has the ideal background and experience for such a publication. And this is what he had to say. This new release from Strake Nature is the most up-to-date guide to the minerals and gemstones of Southern Africa. The region covers here includes the seven countries south of the Zambezi. The author is Professor Bruce Cairncross, a mineralogist with deep knowledge of Africa's mineral wealth. In this, his latest book, he builds on his earlier collaboration with Strake Nature, that resulted in the 2019 publication, Minerals and Gemstones of East Africa. The two books have a similar design, consisting of an overview of the regional geology and mineralization, illustrated with eye-catching photographs and maps, followed by an A to Z of mineral species and associated gems. In both cases, the format is larger than standard field guides, allowing for a superior reader experience. While East Africa is renowned for some relatively recent gemstone finds, such as Tanzanite and Saborite, Southern Africa has by far the longer history of gemstones discovery associated with its world-class mineral deposits. Everyone thinks of diamonds and gold, but the region is also the repository of the world's largest platinum, chrome, and manganese deposits. Southern Africa is accordingly endowed with crystalline products of a long geological history spanning more than 3.8 billion years. Over time, this has led to the evolution of a spectacular diversity of mineral species formed in a range of tectonic environments. The bulk of the book comprises detailed descriptions of some 140 mineral species arranged in alphabetical order. Each mineral is headlined with a characteristic chemical formula, followed by a description of crystal form, physical properties, and country-specific localities. Additional notes on history and uses invite the reader to explore the ample reference list. The crisp text is complemented by over 900 full-colour photographs of museum-quality specimens, both in rough and as faceted gems, along with scenic shots of type localities. The author happily admits that might be some personal bias in his selection of minerals and gemstones to cover in this book. This is not surprising, given that there are several thousand other lesser known minerals, mostly microscopic, that have been internationally recognized. Obviously, these could not all be included. One of the most interesting features highlighted here is the range of colors that some gemstone variants exhibit as a function of their trace element content. The go to mineral in this regard is garnet. The garnet group of minerals illustrated in this book show all the colors of the rainbow except blue. Of course, There are other minerals that do come in shades of blue, notably blue diamonds, which command the highest price per carat of any gemstone. Not to mention a little known mineral from northern Namibia called shatukite, which is characteristically blue. This graces the cover of the book, where a cavity of blue shatukite is shown enclosing needles of green malachite. This striking image with illusions of blue sky and green fields virtually compels the observer to delve into the book. In summary, this is a superb reference showcasing Southern Africa's incomparable mineral and gemstone diversity. There is something in this 320 pages of this handsome volume for everyone interested in the natural history of the earth. The title again, Minerals and Gemstones of Southern Africa is written by Bruce Cairncross and is published by Strake Nature. And you can get a copy of this superb production for 450 Rand.
2: And that review brings us to the second musical track in today's show. Remember, all our music has a theme this month. Can you guess what it is? This second song might help. It's called Takes Two to Tango by my old favorite, Louis Armstrong.
0: Hey baby, how about this dance? Why? Cause it takes two to do this dance takes to the tangle to the tangle to the really get the feeling of romance less do the tangle do the tangle do the dance of love I uh, you can sail on a ship by yourself take a nap on it by yourself I uh, you can get into debt on your own. Lots of things that you can do alone, but takes to the tangle, to the tangle, to the really get the feeling of romance. Let's do the tangle, do the tangle, do the dance of love. And you can croon to the moon by yourself, take a left like a loon by yourself, spend a lot, go to pot. On your own, there's lots of things that you can do alone. But listen here, it takes two to tangle. To the tangle, to the really that really hit the feeling of romance. two the tangle, to the tangle, to the tangle. I do that dance of love. Oh, yeah.
2: Our musical theme yet? If not, our third track coming up after the next two reviews is sure to give it away. And now we hand over to Shirley Gwela, who will be chatting about a memoir called Boy on the Run, a new release from Jakarna, written by Welcome Manla Leshiva. The publisher's blurb says, This book is unlike anything you've ever read, and this book will change your life. And those two statements really caught my eye. They also call it a glorious song of self expression. So, wow, that's some high praise that needs to live up to. It sets the reader up for a very big read. Shirley, does it live up to the blurb?
7: When a publisher's blurb tells you, this book will change your life, I tend to run. But I'm glad I didn't, because even though it may not change my life, it may well, as Mark Gaffirce says, be destined to be a classic. Boy on the Run is already long-listed for the City Press Nonfiction Award. Welcome, Mandela Shiva's memoir is heartbreaking, funny, enchanting, irritating, sad, so well-written and so truly colourful it will make you jump with joy. His writing is so descriptive. Meeting Pedro was an affirmation that I had no business trying to tighten my loose wrist, or his understanding of Grahamstown where everyone walks around with the tranquility of a tree-hugger. The irritation is more with myself because he underscores the incredible divide in this country that comes from a lack of understanding of another language. The book is dotted with what could be Saperi, yet this is looked down upon and called Sipitori, a Tsotsi language mocked by learners when the young Mandler changed schools. Even so, it makes one ashamed of one's ignorance, and this use of another language makes you read very carefully to understand the context. You definitely can't skim-read this one. That aside, the book is remarkable. How he sketches the almost love affair he has with his mother, one of those strong single parents who had him, her second child, at the age of 20, and how this wise, warm and intelligent woman made him understand that while she could have made better choices had she but known, she never regretted having him. There is a palpable separation anxiety which manifests when his aunt takes him from his mother to live with his grandmother, another strong woman, and of course once more when his mother is murdered when he was 9 or 10. His grief as her death is unfolding is gut wrenching. He only manages to separate himself from her years later when he holds an ancestral ceremony to set her free. Until then, she was present in every facet of his life, for he wanted to make her proud, and he must have, through his school years to his university years, and then as a journalist. It's a book of honesty. His constant search for love and acceptance includes his first chatroom exchanges, failed assignation, and a rape, and it is a book of huge contrast. His own journalism career, Rite of Passage, is an example. The hiking and biking stories he did for Getaway magazine contrast with his earlier compelling and angry involvement at Rhodes University and with Rhodes Must Fall. This contrasts again with television interviews on shocking conditions in places like Kailicha. Working for Anne, or in his words, my luck was with the least respected news channel, for Anne was in fact ANN7, and it was owned by the Guptas. If I have any cabal, it is with the use of so many first names only of people who get a transient mention and have little to do with the development of the memoir. But that said, it's a brilliant memoir. Since he was born in 1991, watch the space for the next one.
2: Thank you, Shirley. I think I have to add this one to my ever-expanding, never-exhausted to-read list. And now another August favourite author, especially with the book of judges. Melvin Minnard is here to discuss Julian Barnes' new book, Elizabeth Finch. While Julian Barnes is a favourite author for many of us, I have a feeling this one didn't quite hit the spot for Melvin.
8: When does a writer, a well-known novelist in particular, angers one a tad more than you anticipate? How about when it's the famous Julian Barnes and his new book? It will be true to say that most of his books have an irritation factor built in, from the famous Flaubert's Parrot, 1984, a Booker Prize nominee, to the sense of an ending Booker Prize winner in 2011, to the new Elizabeth Finch. It is mostly the postmodernist twist of plot and or structure that seems to trap the reader, to jolt the logic of flow, to surprise, and I fear, to bore. Part of Barnes's charm is the sweet prose, paragraphs that interlock seamlessly and sentences that swirl you along. It is also cause for readers irritation the downfall of an argument that sinks in too many words, a plot line that swirls into nowhereness. At least that's how it sometimes feels. And the new book is a little like that. Halfway through Elizabeth Finch, I found I've had enough and the novel is barely 180 pages long. A diligent reader of sorts at times, I did finish the novel, but felt the long, off the beaten track, argumentative center was a hard swallow. It had dead-stopped all action relating to the title character and the effect on the, oh dear, so madly influenced by her, the first-person narrator. I'd look forward to the new Barnes, not only for the enigmatic title, but I'd greatly enjoyed recently the marvellous prose meditation he created with the non-fictional The Man in the Red Coat of 2019. And just to recalibrate, I re-read The Sense of an Ending, a book that 11 years ago charmed me off my feet with its drive of virtuosity. There are reasons for one's irritation and the three recently read books, as well as Flaubert's parrot and that other eye-catcher, the Booker Prize nominee, the only story of 2018, showed up why? It's as if Barnes' writing, in the novels especially, is caught up in a solipsistic writer's spell. He uses the fictional first person, yes, but a closer read, and let me say when you get a, a little titchy, catches too much of the author's wordy indulgence. Elizabeth Finch presents itself as another Barnes contemplation about love and life, found, abandoned, or lost, the distance of memory, of youth and old age. But where all his novels are brushed with a philosophical tone, this one is heavy, and perhaps too much so, and dreary. Elizabeth Finch, who is alive only for a brief while in the book, is this glamorous, somewhat mysterious woman of the now world who teaches an adult course on civilization and culture? She casted a spell on our writer of the tale, one Neil, once her student, for the rest of his life. She had opened his mind, he writes, by, and I quote, the shimmer of her phrasing, the lustre of her brain, end quote. After her death, questions about her personal life, mostly unanswerable, prompt him to investigate, speculate, and write about her but suddenly he turns to compose an essay apropos her inspiration, a device at the center of the novel and a jolt to the reader. The essay is about Julian the Apostate and a twirling meditation on the history of enlightenment and other possibilities. Not much fun, I thought, philosophical buff that I once was. When Neil resumes his Elizabeth Finch geography, this reader, with waned interest, had little sensitivity left for the many soft Sophoclean words. In a sense of an ending, Barnes's elegant questions and sentences hold tightly to the philosophical ruminations. In the wondrous The Man in the Red Coat, he entices the reader along in an historic curiosity, but here neither casts his spell.
2: And right now is your third opportunity to guess the theme of all the music on this month's chapter of Book Choice, right here on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, as we go into our third track.
0: Make it mine, make it mine, please make it mine.
5: Three coins in the fountain. Thrown by three hopeful lovers Which one will the fountain blend? Three hearts in the fountain Each heart longing for its home. There they lie Somewhere in the heart of Rome
2: track was Three Coins in the Fountain, the Oscar-winning song from the film The Four Aces, and third time lucky, surely you've guessed our musical theme by now. Stay tuned for the answer later in the show. But first, next up on book choice, I want to tell you about a book event taking place in Cape Town this week. I have a huge interest in book cover design. Of course, it's the first real engagement we have with the books we choose to read, and they say one shouldn't, but who hasn't judged a book by its cover? Our next guest, also takes book cover design very seriously, and her and I regularly have long debates about it. Colleen Higgs wears a number of different hats in the publishing world. She's a writer and a poet, but she's also the renowned and respected founder of Independent Publishing House Majaji Books, which is turning 15 this year, and they're holding some really exciting events to celebrate. Welcome to Book Choice, Colleen. Hi, Paige. Thanks so much for having me. It's so nice to chat. You and I chat about book covers a lot. So I'm excited to chat to you and have this conversation. But I think let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about Mujaji Books and the kinds of books you've been publishing for the last 15 years. So Mujaji is, we, we published only women writers and
9: Southern African women writers. And we've published some amazing people who've gone on to become quite well-known, like Iwande Omatoza, for example, Tracy Farron.
2: Yeah, both award-winning. I think Tracy's book was turned into, was it a TV series or
9: a movie? A
2: movie, yeah. And Yawandi is is multi-award-winning, so you really Ah. do discover a lot of talent out of our local shores. But you and I have quite a lot in common, obviously, because we're so immersed in the world of books. And I think over the last few years, we've discovered that we share a love for book covers. Yes. And something we've been discussing and debating quite a lot recently. Where would you say your book cover love stems from?
9: Well, I mean, I think it's a combination of loving books themselves and having been an avid reader since I was a child. But the cover side, you know, I did art from a trick and I didn't do art at university because of various reasons, but it's something that stayed with me. And, you know, when I was in matric, I went to one of those psychologists who do a whole lot of tests and point you in different directions. And one of the directions that I was pointed in was that I could have been an art gallery person, curator. And so that's something that I didn't really work on in my life. But when I started publishing, the secret joy of working with artists and book covers You know, I mean, in a sense, you don't think that that's one of the things when you think about publishing that you're going to work on. I mean, people always think about the books and the text. But for me, working with the covers and the artists has been, as I said, a secret joy. It's one of the things about my work that gives me the most... Pleasure.
2: Right. And I didn't know you'd studied art. And that makes a lot of sense when I look at your covers, because over the years, you've actually created some astonishing book covers. In fact, last year, I bought one of your books purely on the strength of its cover. Woman Out of Water is the title <laughs> of the book by <laughs> Sally Cranswick. you Look it up online if you can, listeners. It's got a really beautiful cover. And thank goodness the content lived up to that. So I was wondering you know, for readers, judging a book by its cover is a bit of a hobby. But as a publisher and author, can picking the right cover, have you recognized that it's made a difference in the books that you sell? You know, does it have financial ramifications if you get it wrong? What have you kind of learned over the years?
9: You know, it's hard to really say what I've learned because a lot of it's really just sort of intuition and gut feel. I mean, there's not actual sort of hard research that, that I can point to and say this and this. But I mean, what I look for when I'm working with a cover designer and I, I try to involve the authors as much as possible but there comes a point when I have to cut them off because you know one can sort of spend forever working on 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 a cover, but it has to be recognizable online these days, so when it's made quite small, you need to know that you still need to be able to see that that's the cover. It becomes a kind of outfit in a sense that the book is wearing yeah, um, yeah. I mean I haven't always got it right. And I, I try not to only see it as, you know, marketing and advertising of the book. I, I want the cover to honor, in a sense, what is inside the book and to also create some curiosity and interest from the reader, obviously. I mean, there is there is research that says um, the cover of a book, if it's interesting enough, a, 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 you know, a customer will go into a bookshop and pick it up. And then you've got like two seconds as the <laughs> publisher to interest them further but you know, they right. first have to want to pick it up. So right. it's a very quick process.
2: So you have to be quite immediate. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you've chosen book covers as one of the arms to celebrate your 15th birthday. So I see that you're having book cover design exhibition at Spin Street in Cape Town to celebrate your 15th birthday. Tell us a little bit about what you have in store for our listeners and for people in the streets of Cape Town.
9: So we're going to have up a selection. We obviously can't put up all the book covers that, that we've done. There isn't enough space in the gallery, but a selection of covers. And there'll be some different aspects of covers. You know, a couple of the books we will show how the cover design developed to the final cover and a couple of alternatives. And, you know, they're going to be covers in different sizes, depending on what we're trying to say about that particular cover. I'm hoping it will be an interesting exhibition and you know for people who come and look at it to sort of take a step back from the books but to look at the covers you know and see them as artworks because what I have tried to do with Majaji is to invite artists you know when working on a cover to basically create an artwork especially for that particular book so these are all original artworks and then obviously the lettering and the rest of the cover design comes in so some of the images will be unadorned you know, they won't have the lettering. They'll just be the, the artwork and some will, will have the lettering and will be the actual book cover, as it were.
2: Right, um, so will they be for sale as pieces of art? The yeah, there will
9: be, there will be. And we'll also have, people will be able to order posters and prints.
2: And then you'll have the books themselves as well. The books that correlate with the actual covers, you'll have those available to take a look at and buy too, I suspect.
9: Yeah, not. we won't have all of those because some of the books, you know, are either out of print or no longer Majaji doesn't have the the rights anymore because we have been going for fifteen years and publishers don't right. necessarily have the rights forever. So yeah, I mean, but we, we will have a good selection of books to to choose from.
2: And you're also holding a design panel with cover art designers. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
9: Yeah, so we've invited three of the cover artists who live in Cape Town and that Majaji has worked with quite a lot and they all work quite differently. We've got Carla Kreiser, Jesse Breitenbach, and Daniel Clough. And they will be talking about how they approach making a cover, You know, how they think about it, what research they do, and they'll show some visuals of their work in progress. And you know, we're just going to talk more about how they do it. And also it'll be interesting, I think, for people who are interested in covers to, to see that three different artists work quite differently. I mean, yeah. Danielle Clough, for example, does hand embroidery. Um, I mean, it's not the only thing she does. I mean, she's very talented and can do anything. She she created a, a cover of Fiona Snicker's book, Now Following You. I think it was a social media sort of.
2: Right, I remember um, that. Too. Yeah, so that was
9: a photograph. But, you know, I worked with her because I did some work for, for the Gandesbian Archive and published a book for them called Queer Africa and Queer Africa 2, so for Queer Africa 2, she hand-embroidered these small portraits of different people and then put that as a kind of collage or quilt almost on the cover. And you know, it's an incredibly striking cover. I'm just sorry that it's not a majaji cover, but I still feel a lot of pride in that particular cover.
2: Right. And amazing how many different medium can go into different exactly. book covers. Yeah. Ask you How much are tickets and where can people get them?
9: Okay, it's on web tickets, and they're 50 rand each. It's really just so that we can pay the artists an honorarium for being willing to come and present and talk about their work. So, right. yeah.
2: Are you the- and I could talk about book covers for years and years and years, but I'm, we're just about out of time, but I want to share some information for our listeners about this event because and the exhibition, because I think it's going to be a really wonderful event if you love reading and you enjoy art and you are curious about how the two worlds collide and how and the other thing about book cover is it's where commerce meets art because you need to sell a cover uh, like you said in in a couple of seconds so there's really a lot to learn and a lot to discuss about it and so we've been speaking to Colleen Higgs who is the publisher of Majaji Books and we've been talking about Majaji's 15th birthday cover design exhibition which is taking place at Spin Street in Cape Town. The exhibition starts later this week from the 4th to the 13th of August. And the book cover design panel we were talking about is on the 13th of August, that's a Saturday at 10 a.m. You can find more info about all of this at mojajibooks.co.za or you can book your tickets now on web tickets. And uh, I suspect the tickets will go fast, so do book soon. Colleen, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to talking to you more on the Good Book Appreciation Society about cover design and about your birthday. And happy birthday and good luck with your exhibition. Thanks so much, Paige. And that brings us to our fourth track of this show. If you haven't guessed the theme of all our songs yet, this fourth track should give you some idea. It's Four Walls by Jim Reeves. (laughs)
10: You laugh while the wine's overflowing, while I sit and whisper.
2: tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. Have you guessed the musical theme for the month yet? Stay tuned for the fifth track and the answer coming up soon. But first, Philip Todras was joined in the studio by Dere Tladi to discuss his new book called Sins of the Father, published by Peacock Books in Johannesburg.
11: Sins of the Father, written by Dere Tladi, is a book, well, they always talk about page turners, things you can't put down. And I must tell you, this is the one book where this is how I felt about it. I'm speaking to Derek Tladi in Geneva. And what is so amazing is the authenticity. So Derek, I want to talk about you. I don't want to tell them anything about the book. I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> you might give a drop in something, but uh, we'll start with a diplomatic meeting. Mumbashi mm-hmm. is rocked by a terrorist attack. And from there, there's a story that you've just got to read. But tell me, Dero, something about your background in the legal sphere, which gives you this authority to talk so convincingly.
12: Yeah, so, so I'm an international lawyer by training, but I've also worked for government. So I combine legal academics and also diplomacy. And a lot of what I've written about, both in this book and in the previous one, are actually shaped by both international law and the life of diplomacy. For example, the scene that you've just described of a meeting, a diplomatic meeting in Lumumbashi, uh, is actually based on an actual meeting that I participated in in around 2013 or 2012. A diplomatic meeting between South Africa and the DRC, which also was aimed at sort of trying to resolve our electricity crisis.
11: So you've got a background in working with different governments, et cetera, yes. but I'm going to ask you to give us <clears throat> some of your degrees and the areas in which you've worked and yes. some of the you know, bodies that you've worked with, which allows us really to get so involved in the story.
12: Right. So I've got a law degrees
11: from the University of
12: Pretoria, the LLB and the BLC. And then I did a master's degree in the United States at the University of Connecticut and a PhD in Rotterdam, Erasmus University in Rotterdam. I was posted in New York for a period of four years. I was the South African legal advisor to the South African Permanent Mission. And there I worked on a number of interesting issues, including being our legal person for the Security Council. I mean, a lot of the issues that I write about are actually related to the Security Council and the big. Powers there,
11: and how did this also influence your first book, which I must admit I haven't read? <coughs> and some of the perhaps association because you use the same lead character, which is Tolamo Mahi, and that's the one you refer to as Prof, don't you? Right. So uh, can so the I can I call you Prof? By the way, <laughs> I think that'd be totally appropriate. Yes, as long as it's a term of endearment, I always say. <laughs> uh, so the first book
12: was a lot more heavily influenced by things like um, so. So in that book, so that book concerned actually. Uh, some of the background things that the big powers among the Security Council do to try to sort of get their way. Um, this book is a lot less influenced by that stuff used by the big players in order to make sure that they can um, influence how the the world works and 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 so on.
11: Good. Now, the book also takes you to a number of places. I mean, we go from. You can tell some of the places you go to, including Pretoria and Johannesburg. And basically, it's practically everywhere, including Timbuktu, I think. But you do with such knowledge of the areas. Are these places that you've visited? Yes, yeah, so I try not to. In fact, I haven't yet written about any place I haven't
12: visited. You know, even the restaurants and the hotels, I try to make sure that it's it's restaurants, hotels, streets that I've been on. Um, there are some exceptions, some fictional, but very few. I think for the most part, um, every place, every street that is described in there's a place that i've I've been
11: yeah it is remarkable and then also you seem to know several languages because every now and again you drop in a little saying by the way i must just add that you always translate as you go along but how yeah. many languages do you speak that was also actually so The yeah i mean the one foreign language in the book that i
12: would say i i know a little bit is french i mean i've been learning french since um I think it's about six years that i've been learning french like so i i'm not good conversationally but i read french well i write french well you know i can read a speech in french and so on so but for the others you have other means of so i don't speak arabic i mean there's arabic in there but i don't speak arabic and so i had to have help with arabic
11: well you've certainly got help from all the right places because what you've done is given us a really absorbing book and that's why i'm very reluctant to give too much away but perhaps you'd like to just give one or two pointers to give the people the idea of what's happening
6: yeah. So this particular
12: book is, um, on the surface, it's about the search for a terrorist. Uh, who are the terrorists and what do they want? But if you peel back the layers a little bit, it explores themes like relationship between parents. It explores themes about democracy. It explores themes about power and sort of how, um, so sort of relationship between powerful states in terms of South African market. If you think about our energy crisis right now and, um, the load shedding, uh, that's explored the relationship between. The African National Congress as a, uh, as a political party, the African National Congress as a liberation movement, the African National certainly, Congress as government.
11: You certainly have a lot that you do cover, but you do it in an absolutely riveting way. And one goes along that journey with you. And I really want to recommend Sins of a Father. If you're looking for a gripping book that you don't want to put down, it's Sins of a Father, Derek Cloudy, and it's published by Forky Press, Johannesburg.
2: Thank you, Philip and Dere. That wraps up our August show. A big August thank you to Mwandi Lobi and Ewan Inglis for building this show for us. And thanks to our incredible sponsors, Exclusive Books, and all the wonderful reviewers, authors, and publishers who help make this show possible. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and I look forward to joining you again for Book Choice on the first Monday of September. We're playing out with our fifth track of the show, Five Minutes More by Frank Sinatra. And I'm sure you will have guessed our musical theme by now. Of course, it was numerical. Take it away, Frank, in five,
13: four, three, two, and one. Dear, this evening seemed to go so awfully fast. We had so much fun, and now you're home at last. I look forward to a kiss or two at the garden gate. But she gave me just one peck and insisted it was late. Give me five minutes more, only five minutes more. Let me stay, let me stay in your arms. Here am I begging for only five minutes more, only five minutes more of your charm. All week long I dreamed about our Saturday date. Don't you know that Sunday morning you can sleep late? Give me five minutes more, only five minutes more, let me stay, let me stay in your arms. More, only five minutes more. Let me stay, let me stay in your arms. Ah, come on.
1: book choice was brought to you by exclusive books, celebrating getting more books to more people.
3: The Exclusive Books Recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za.
0: F.M.R.